Welcome to the Hashtag Health Podcast. My name is Larissa Loringiano. I'm a second year medical student at the Schulich School of Medicine at Western University. Today I had the pleasure of interviewing Dr. Kristen Shoesmith, a physician scientist at London Health Sciences Centre. Through both her clinical and research work, Dr. Shoesmith focuses on caring for people with amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, otherwise known as Lou Gehrig's disease or ALS. When many people hear ALS, they immediately think of the ice bucket challenge, prominent figures like Stephen Hawking, or friends and family members with the disease. ALS is a progressive motor neuron disease with mixed upper and lower motor neuron signs. Muscle weakness and spasticity, dysarthria, dysphagia, and respiratory insufficiency are all symptoms of the disease that worsen over time. When a physician suspects ALS, they typically refer their patient to a neurologist like Dr. Shoesmith in order to exclude other alternative causes of the neurological symptoms. Once ALS is diagnosed, the patient's symptoms are managed by a multidisciplinary team. Every person and family experiences the disease differently and requires multidimensional support. With a median survival of two to four years after diagnosis, the ALS care team helps patients maximize personal meaning, autonomy, and comfort while living with this devastating disease. It is an honor to present Dr. Shoesmith's perspectives on diagnosing and caring for people with ALS. First of all, thank you so much for having me uh, today. I appreciate the time to uh, speak to you and, and all the uh, students who will be on the podcast. I'm Kristen Shoesmith. I'm a neurologist, and I lead the ALS clinic at the London Health Sciences Centre University Hospital site. Um, I do a lot of medical education, so that's how I met Larissa, um, and I love doing both, uh, educating young medical students as well as uh, taking care of patients who are living with ALS and supporting both those patients and their families as well. Perfect. Um, so you touched on it a little bit in terms of your role as both an ed educator as well as being very active clinically. Um, and we know that ALS is a very or is a disease that requires multidisciplinary care. Um, so what is your role in multidisciplinary ALS care? So I'll, I'll say that um, multidisciplinary care is vital in a disease such as ALS uh, because there are so many complexities with this disease that uh, the physician alone cannot manage the disease. So we rely on a team of allied health professionals to help manage care of these patients. So ALS is a disease that can affect patients so differently. We have patients that at the beginning of their disease can have speech and or swallowing difficulties. And so for those symptoms, we would rely on the speech language pathologist to um, offer suggestions to improve someone's communication and or strategies to help with the safety of their swallowing so they don't aspirate when they eat. The speech language pathologist will talk about aids to improve someone's communication skills. So if someone is verging on difficulties communicating verbally and they need to use some written communication tools, they'll talk about some apps to use on their phone. Um, they'll talk about, um, in some situations, if they cannot type, they may talk about using apps such as an eye gaze technology um, to be able to communicate, or even just simple letter boards or picture boards to be able to communicate for those people who have substantial difficulties. 
From a swallowing perspective, they'll assess whether or not texture modifications are required. Um, and if uh, texture modifications are insufficient to maintain safety of eating and or caloric intake is insufficient, they'll talk about whether uh, insertion of a feeding tube is required. That speech pathologist will work very closely with our dietitian in the clinic to make sure that the patients are getting sufficient calories um, and to talk about uh, whether um, they need to worry about what they eat. Um, so do we do we eliminate sweets? Do we do we go on these crazy fat diets or is caloric intake um, the most important, which it usually is the most important and talk about how they can ensure sufficient calories are, are consumed. Um, ALS is a very interesting disease in that it's hypermetabolic, and so patients who have this disease actually require more calories um, than they did prior to getting the disease, and so the dietitian will counsel them about that as well. And if the feeding tube is in their future and their goals of care, the dietitian also coordinates um, what type of tube feeds that patient will be getting and um, how we potentially troubleshoot around uh, challenges that the patient may have with uh, organizing their tube feed and tolerating the tube feeds as well. Um, if a patient has significant limb weakness, the occupational therapist and physiotherapist will substantially help with uh, improving their function when either the occupational therapist when it comes to upper extremity function because that's their, their main, um, uh, uh, I guess, function. The occupational therapist does a lot of upper extremity tasks and, and assistance with how someone functions with upper extremity weakness. So they'll help with tools for dressing, so button hooks or adaptive clothing uh, for that patient, um, adaptive devices for the spoons or cutlery um, so that they can more easily feed themselves as well. Transfer devices uh, as well, the occupational therapist will do. A physiotherapist will help with gait aids, so um, wheelchairs, um, canes if, if required, um, walkers and different types of walkers because not not, there's not a one-size-fits-all walker for patients. Um, but they'll also talk about stretching um, because spasticity is a huge component of this disease as well. And um, uh, what else does a physiotherapist do? They do so much. They also talk about uh, coughing um, and improving cough efficacy because pulmonary health is a huge component of their um, job description as well. Pain management is also both the OT and the PT's job because uh, pain and main uh, maintaining um, reduction in pressure points for someone who's sitting for a lot of the day or have shoulder instability because of weakness around their shoulders, they'll talk about pain management in those patients as well. So they do a, a whole bunch of things. Um, the last person that we have not mentioned um, is the social worker, and there's so much that a social worker will do in, in the clinic uh, environment. Um, these patients may be employed when they get their diagnosis, and then the uh, social worker will help them decide should they continue to work, uh, what kind of benefits packages could they get if they stopped working, uh, what kind of uh, government assistance could they get if they stopped working, uh, but also just the um, acknowledgement of the fact that this is very stressful in their life, and, and the social worker will also help with counseling of those patients um, and finding supports to help with the counseling that's uh, required as well. Um, and the quarterback of all this is often not me. Uh, we have a nurse specialist who is the quarterback. Um, so the nurse specialist is the person that the, pers the patient and their family members can call between visits um, to expedite service, uh, services for that patient, but also to help with counseling in between and to answer questions in between. Um, and so our quarterback or our superstar on a team is often the nurse who, who does so much for these patients. 
So as you can probably tell from this very long description of multidisciplinary care that it's vitally important because um, there's so much expertise that the physician themselves does not have and really relies on all these uh, allied health professionals uh, and experts within the disease to help support these patients. And the delivery of this multidisciplinary care is approximately every three months. So the patient comes to us for one-stop shopping. So they come and they spend the day with us and they go through the entire um, team and their one-stop shop um, to maximize that patient and to help them be as functional as possible. So we really think it's a, a great um, type of care delivery system. And the evidence would support it as well. So there's evidence that would support that outcomes are better should a patient be followed through this multidisciplinary care as well. It definitely sounds like with ALS, there, there's so many different components to address, um, having like those support systems in place and then the ability to contact um, a nurse who's, who's kind of overseeing your care for any swallowing difficulties or, or issues with pain management that arise. Um, you can kind of see how that model is, is really centered around the patient and trying to make their course with the disease um, as easy as possible, even though, of course, it's a very difficult and challenging thing to live with day to day. Um, so yeah, you, you covered the importance of the collaborative care model. Um, so moving on, what are some kind of tools and strategies that you use um, when informing patients that they have ALS? So this is a really tough question um, and probably a question that medical students will grapple with um, because one of the scariest things when we're in medicine is delivering bad news to a patient and a diagnosis of ALS is, is for some people one of the worst pieces of news someone could receive. So trying to deliver the news or the diagnosis of ALS in a compassionate manner is so important um, for the patient and their family but also in maintaining a good doctor-patient relationship. Um, if you deliver the news badly, you may fracture the doctor-patient relationship, and that may impair your ability to help manage that patient moving forward, and they may not have the trust in you that uh, you, you need to maintain a good therapeutic relationship. So how do I do it? Um, I will say that there, it's not a one-size-fits-all delivery. I, first of all, get to try to understand the patient's goals, desires, background in taking the whole history from the patient. So understanding the patient and what their expectations of the visit is will be uh, extracted in your development of the relationship as you take the history from the patient. So you get to know um, whether or not the patient is somebody who asks a lot of questions or someone who defers to their family all of the time and doesn't answer the questions. So trying to understand that um, those components of the patient will really help you in, in tailoring your delivery of the diagnosis to the patient. So first of all, who is your patient? Get to know your patient so you understand or help predict what kind of information that they um, need and want through the diagnosis. The second is what does the patient expect from the visit? So I almost always when I'm at the point where I'm ready to give a diagnosis to the patient, so after I've taken the history, after I've examined the patient, after I've done any necessary testing to establish what the diagnosis is, and I'm comfortable with the, what the diagnosis is, I first ask the patient, what do they think is happening? When you ask the patient what they think is happening, it gives you a window of where their mindset is at that time. 
So I will ask the patient, so on coming today, you may have Googled your symptoms. What do you, what do you think is going on? Or did your family members maybe think about what was going on and suggest to you what was going on? So I ask those type of probing questions to know where they're at. And I try to establish if they've thought about ALS so far. Sometimes they haven't. And if they haven't, it's a different conversation. If they have thought about ALS and they're worried that the diagnosis is ALS, that in some ways is easier because it's easier to break the news if they have already predicted that that's what the diagnosis is. And with Google, Dr. Google, um, many patients will already have come worried that ALS is the diagnosis at hand. So if a patient already comes with the assumption that um, the diagnosis is ALS, my typical steps will be to say that, you know, your history told me that you had difficulties with your speech or difficulties with your, um, your weakness. My examination showed the combination of upper and lower motor neuron signs in language that this, the patient would accept, obviously not using upper and no lower motor neuron signs, but telling them that the signs that I would um, have found on the examination, telling them that the EMG had, um, was done and also confirmed some abnormalities, and explaining that imaging has excluded alternative diagnosis. And so I would paint the picture that I've excluded all other diagnoses, and unfortunately, we have in front of us a diagnosis of ALS at the end of the day. So I would use language um, similar to that. In the patients that are ex like already anticipating that I'm going to deliver a diagnosis. But following up after confirming that unfortunately this is ALS, I say, but, I always use that but and a hanger on top of that to say there are things that we can do. So yes, this is a diagnosis you do not want to hear, but we can use medications to slow down the progression. We can provide you with the best care um, that we have at our fingertips. We also have the option of research to potentially improve your outcomes. So there, that delivery of hope with the but answer really helps um, in my mind, give that patient hope that there could be better outcomes. Um, the other thing we, we do is that if it looks like the patient is potentially on a slower trajectory than the average patient, I highlight that fact. If the patient looks like they're on a rapid trajectory, then I don't hide that fact either. But telling them that not all patients have a bad outcome is also a really good hope message to deliver to that patient. Um, so I often give stats. Um, so I'd often say to the patient that um, although the average patient um, does um, has a more rapidly progressive disease, um, there are some patients that will live for longer than five years. And I will tell them that I have a number of patients in my practice that have lived longer than 10 years. It's a tricky thing to talk about survival. So I usually only bring up those time courses if, they, if there's an expectation that they already know that there's a mortality associated with it. I don't generally um, talk about mortality or what type of survival that patient will have in the first visit. This is more of a progression over time, a conversation that evolves over time. Um, so the average patient, I might disclose the diagnosis, talk about the hope that we have for that patient, talk about the management for that patient, and say, 
we are now going to make sure that you have a follow-up appointment with our nurse clinician so that she can make sure you have all questions answered. And that the subsequent visit for that patient, when they come back for their first multidisciplinary team day, then we can answer more of those in-depth questions. And if they ask more specifics about what does my survival look like, we can maybe answer those questions. Giving too much on the first day overwhelms the patient. So we try to package things so that they're not completely overwhelmed. That was a very long answer for the, for the patient who comes with an uh, expectation of what ALS is. If a patient comes to my clinic and they have no idea what they have, and unfortunately this is likely ALS, but they have no idea, I have found based on my practice that telling them that they have ALS and that there's no other options for the diagnosis doesn't work well. Um, so for those patients, what I do is I tell them that I am very worried about what's going on. I tell them that um, they've got rapid, uh, they've got weakness. We have not found any obvious reversible cause. But for that patient, I will say, what I'm going to do for you is I'm going to do lots of blood work to make sure there's nothing in your blood work that would be reversible. If there's any imaging that has not been done, so an MRI of the brain that hasn't been done or an MRI of the cervical spine that has not been done that would be appropriate for that clinical scenario, I order that as well. And I say, I'm going to do my due diligence and make sure that we're not missing a treatable cause. But I am worried that what we have in front of us is a disease that is not curable and that may be progressive over time. And so I, if someone pushes me, I might say that, I might give a percentage. Well, I might say that I'm 95% worried that this is something neurodegenerative and this may be along the lines of ALS. I might, I will usually use those terms, but that I am going to look for everything else. Giving them that out and most importantly, telling them that we're doing absolutely everything for, to look for an alternative diagnosis, make sure that they have trust in me because I'm going to need that they are trusting in me and my team for future care. So even though I may be fully confident at the end of the day, I have a diagnosis of ALS and there's nothing else that this could be, telling them and doing that process of doing the investigations that um, will completely exclude any other diagnoses will help that patient gain that trust in the diagnosis and make it happen. Um, I, you know, based on the years that I've been doing this and I've, I've been in the ALS um, clinic now for uh, 17 years, um, it, those, the times where I've just come out and said that this is ALS and there's no other um, no other diagnosis to consider. If the patient comes without any expectation that's going to be ALS, it does not bode well from a trusting relationship. So I've I've changed my practice and and done a more stepwise approach, um, introducing the diagnosis um, and moving forward in that way. The lesson in all this is I will tell you that those patients who another physician has told them already that this could be ALS or that they've looked at it themselves and they've discovered that this could be ALS, that makes the diagnosis pathway faster and in some ways easier for me. I know everything shouldn't be easier for me, um, but I don't think it gives a patient any um, benefit for not using the words ALS in, in the discussion. So if I have a colleague, a neurologist who's scared of ALS, and, and that unfortunately ALS is a scary disease for not just the patients, but also the clinicians who treat um, uh, patients. So I have many neurologist colleagues who are afraid of using those words for patients. There's probably several family physicians who are afraid of bringing up that diagnosis. And if you don't know, you don't know. So I don't want you to say this is ALS. I want you to say, well, I'm worried this could be ALS. So it, the thought has been introduced to the patient. 
so that when that patient comes to me, we can have a more meaningful conversation and it's less of a shock to the patient when we when we hear those words. Um, so in summary, that's because that's a lot of words. Um, I will just say that um, if a patient comes to the clinic and they already have um, thoughts in their mind that this could be ALS, whether or not it's introduced by a physician or themselves by doing Dr. Google, it's an easier diagnosis pathway um, and an, an easier delivery of diagnosis. For those patients who come without any um, prior assumption this could be ALS, it is a much more gradual process. So it does take a little bit more of a delay to uh, give the diagnosis um, because the, the doctor-patient relationship is so important in, in moving forward in this disease. Yeah, it definitely sounds like knowing your patient and, and really trying to get an understanding of where they're at in terms of whether they've heard of ALS um, is, is kind of the first step. And of course, like the importance of multidisciplinary care, like we just talked about, really relies on having that trusting relationship with the patient. So I can see, too, in this kind of day and age um, where there's Google, um, people can get a lot of information online um, and start to Google their symptoms, like you mentioned. So maybe have kind of stumbled across some good and bad quality information um, and kind of share some of the same worries um, that you do. So, yeah. Much different than when someone comes in, I guess, and, and doesn't kind of have any ideas. Yeah, and, and I will just use one other um, point with what you just said, Larissa, which is important, is that um, I always ask the patient, have you considered any other diagnoses or have your family members run across any other diagnoses that you want us to exclude? Because if you don't do that, there's always going to be doubt in the patient's mind if they have an alternative diagnosis. So you generally want to at least address any potential diagnosis that they have con considered. Lyme disease, for example, comes up quite frequently. So if the um, patient says, could this be Lyme disease, you want to address that possibility. Um, if they had asked, could this potentially be um, GBS, Guillain-Barre syndrome, then you want to address that as well. So you really want to pull out any potential diagnoses that they've considered so that we can address those and make sure that they the patient isn't left with any doubt in their mind. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, I bet every patient kind of has a different response to actually hearing that diagnosis. Um, but what are some of the typical responses that you would get in that initial meeting after you kind of let them know that, that you're pretty confident that it's ALS? Oh, that's that's a that's a tough one, Larissa. Because um, uh, I'll say, as the physician, you also may have different responses yourself. Um, so I'll start with the fact that um, uh, sometimes, if you have a patient in front of you that you personally identify with, so they are the same age as you, they have children the same age as your children, they look like your parents. If you identify with your patient with your patient, you may have an emotional reaction when you deliver that news, which can be tough. So you can only imagine that if you have an emotional reaction when you deliver the bad news of the diagnosis of a patient, that the patient almost certainly will have their uh, own emotional reaction. So, the, you know, there's no standard reaction to any patient. Um, some patients will um, start crying and they won't absorb anything else after that. And so that will be a trigger to, to make sure you just deliver the diagnosis and you move on to say, um, we're going to do a quick follow-up after this in, um, in a week and uh, we'll make sure that we, we check in with you um, in a week. Just because if you deliver more than just the diagnosis and they're crying, they don't absorb uh, more than that. 
Um, some patients um, are stoic because they knew that it was coming, but um, for those patients, I, I think that I'm delivering the news. Um, and then my nurse may come into the room shortly after I leave just to give them some additional information to, and support uh, numbers for the patient. Um, and the patient cries in front of the nurse and doesn't cry in front of me. Um, so sometimes patients are very strong in front of the physician, um, but may, in a different um, allied health professional situation, such as the nurse, um, they, they may break down at that point in time. Um, sometimes people are angry, um, so we also have to be uh, aware that some patients are angry. They, they're angry at receiving such a diagnosis. They're, it's not fair. How dare this happen to me? I've done everything well in my life. I've been the perfect, uh, um, I've been leading the most healthful life. How, how do I get a diagnosis like this? Um, so trying to acknowledge that this is frustrating, acknowledge to them that um, this is you know, not fair and, and uh, they didn't deserve this and it isn't fair, um, but, but acknowledging that we can't change what the diagnosis is. Um, so most importantly, no matter what their reaction is, you are supporting them, acknowledging that there's no bad reaction to their emotional response to the diagnosis um, and being flexible in how you respond to their emotional response, whether or not it's tears, whether or not it's being stoic, whether or not it's it's frustration and anger. Um, and, and there is definitely an art to medicine in that how you um, navigate um, your response to, to their responses is really important to maintain that doctor-patient relationship. Mm -hmm. And compassionate care, of course, to the patient. Sure. I think as medical students, we, we first get our experience interviewing or, or trying to navigate those difficult conversations in our clinical skills building with actors and actresses and get some of the practice, but it's a lot different when you're dealing with that full spectrum of emotions um, in, in a clinical setting and, and you know that it, it's not an actor, that you're actually delivering a piece of information that can really change someone's life. Um, so... Can I actually say something to yeah. that, Larissa, so is it, which is actually really important. So I would encourage students when they are doing their observerships with the preceptors um, to pay attention to how diagnoses are delivered in real time, in real scenarios. Um, I want you to critically think about how a diagnosis was delivered in the room. So watch your preceptor, watch the patient reaction about how that diagnosis was delivered. And think, was this done well? Could there be an improvement? And even apart from that, how would I have done this? Would I definitely mimic exactly what was done? Or would I have changed slight things in how the de uh, delivery was done or how the response to delivery um, happened? Um, so changing um, um, or just evaluating someone else's diagnosis is so important. Um, and one of the things that I really, really like to do is reflect afterwards with a student who is in a room with me after I de um, deliver a, a bad news diagnosis such as ALS to say, okay, like, how did you feel in there? So what were your emotions as a student observing that interaction? Um, what do you think went well? What would you do? What would you not do? What would you be comfortable doing? What would you not be comfortable doing? So all of those reflection tasks, um, you might have a preceptor who goes through those with you, but even if you don't have a preceptor who asks those questions, 
do it yourself because that will help you become a better physician in practice. And, and, uh, and don't worry if you cry in a room, the patient will not think anything of you. They will think you're an emotional, compassionate individual and, um, um, and it's okay. Um, generally try to position yourself though so that the patient isn't directly going to see you crying so my, my one tip is that just try to be off at an angle so that you're not in front of them because that sometimes helps the emotional com component when you when you deliver because if the patient is crying sometimes especially for those that haven't um had a lot of experience delivering the bad news yet um just being off to the side sometimes can help you bite your lip um step on the floor really hard squeeze your fist to try to blunt that emotional reaction that sometimes comes quite quickly and someone who's watching that type of interaction. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's really great advice, especially in that piece about reflecting on kind of the situation, because um, oftentimes we're first observing before we're in that position. So really like thinking about how the situation made you feel, what you would do differently, what worked well, what didn't. Um, I can see that being kind of a very vital part of leading up to, to being able to give a diagnosis like that yourself. Um, so shifting gears a little bit, um, one thing that comes up often in the discussion of kind of terminal illness is um, goals of care, especially kind of more towards the end of life, but oftentimes a little bit earlier on to kind of establish that and use that to, to guide treatment. Um, so starting off very general, what does goals of care mean? So um, goals of care is a discussion that um, you have with your patient or an ongoing conversation you have with your patient to determine what's important in their treatment pathway and maybe what's not important in their treatment pathway. Um, when it comes to ALS care, the goals of care are often, are they interested in certain interventions and not interested in other interventions? So the interventions of note in ALS care are would they consider a feeding tube, a percutaneous feeding tube, to be part of their pathway with ALS? Another is, would they consider BiPAP support, so non-invasive ventilation, as being part of their pathway in ALS? And then um, a bigger um, component is, um, would they feel comfortable living with a tracheostomy and being on invasive ventilation? So those are the three main interventions that we talk about within goals of care. And um, those conversations are often brought up by the patient and or family on their own. So, so often just in um, a usual in clinic interaction, those questions will come up. Um, but if they don't come up spontaneously, we have triggers that will um, get us to initiate the conversation, such as if someone's swallowing is deteriorating, um, then we'll obviously start talking about feeding to before it's necessary to have a feeding tube in the ideal situation. Sometimes we miss that ideal step and have to do it when it's when it's more urgent to have that conversation. Similarly, breathing support through non-invasive ventilation or invasive ventilation, um, we would be triggered to have those conversations should they start to develop some respiratory insufficiency symptoms and or signs, i.e. the pulmonary function uh, results that uh, make us triggered, make us have that trigger to have that conversation. Um, and for some people, they are comfortable having these conversations because they've thought of their own um, uh, thoughts about whether or not they would want intervention or not. So sometimes the conversation is very easy because they've already um, either 
um, heard other people's journeys um, or seen movies about it or um, looked on the internet and seeing what interventions are possible. So uh, some people come with a, net, a general understanding of what interventions will be talked about and whether and they'll have some thoughts about whether they want to proceed with those types of uh, interventions or not. Others, they won't have considered it and they will be afraid of talking about those interventions because um, those are steps along a pathway that that imply that someone's mortality is at risk. And so some people have a great difficulty talking about those steps along the journey of ALS that um, will eventually lead to, unfortunately, their death. Um, so sometimes those conversations are difficult if someone hasn't already started to think about um, their own mortality. So ideally, we do them in small steps in advance of needing any intervention. Um, but sometimes, because of how quickly someone's declining, we do need to have those conversations a little bit earlier. And our job as the physician is to inform the patient, not to make their decision for them, but to inform the patient about what the intervention is, what it would mean for them, what advantages there would be, what potentially disadvantages or side effects or complications there may be. and ideally let the patient make their own decision about whether that intervention would be appropriate for them. Um, the exception being the invasive um, ventilation pathway is a challenging pathway for not just the patient but also the family members. Um, because just because a patient wants an intervention, um, the patient doesn't always appreciate the consequence on their family member who has to support that intervention. So we do have to make sure and circle back to the patient to say, yes, you can make this decision, but have you considered what impact this would have on your family who has to support this for you because you cannot physically support it. Um, we live in a society that we do not have 24-hour um, care in home environments provided by the provincial governments. That, that, that pathway does not exist in, in Canada um, in any jurisdiction unless you are extremely wealthy and can provide 24-hour um, care by your own pocket dollars. Uh, so that generally is not an option for most, for most people, so that means that the family members have to support the intervention. So we do have some discussions about um, can the family unit support um, non-invasive ventilation or um, uh, feeding tube and what would that look like. If the family unit can't support it in the home, uh, we also then have a discussion is that if you accept this intervention, you may need to be in a long-term care environment where there's other health professionals that can provide the, the support. So there's a lot of challenges in some of those conversations. Um, for those patients who accept invasive ventilation or want to consider invasive ventilation, that is an extreme stress on the family unit and not many can, ex can really manage that type of um, uh, intervention. So we um, take the step of often um, introducing a patient to someone who already has inv invasive ventilation and their family to talk about how what that looks like, how much work it in entails, um, what stresses that they have, um, would they choose it again, should they have a repeat ability to make that decision, uh, because having those conversations from someone who's living with the intervention is, is really important, and seeing what it would look like and what it would entail. Um, so um, it's a little bit more involved when we talk about invasive ventilation. Majority of patients in Canada do not accept that. Um, you're at less than, I think, 3% of patients who accept uh, invasive ventilation. But a lot of ALS patients will accept feeding tubes and uh, non-invasive ventilation to support their, their journey. 
Um, so those are the interventions. The other goals of care component is, is uh, of course, if um, someone is nearing end of life, do they wish to have CPR um, and um, uh, invasive ventilation, which is, again, part of the invasive ventilation uh, conversation. Um, that conversation is actually a little bit easier because if someone has decided they don't want to live on invasive ventilation, that type of journey, that type of pathway is not for them. Um, for a lot of ALS patients nearing the end of life, um, if they were to have CPR, that generally means CPR directly to invasive ventilation. And if someone's breathing muscles are so weak, they cannot be extubated because they cannot get the tube out because their breathing muscles are so weak once they've been intubated. Um, so knowing that that pathway, um, the patient's already decided that they do not wish to have invasive ventilation, I can guide their decision saying, well, if you don't want invasive ventilation, really there's no point in doing CPR because we could not get you off the invasive ventilation at the end. Um, or if you have severe difficulty breathing, again, if you've decided you don't want it long-term invasive ventilation, there's no point in doing temporary uh, invasive ventilation because we could not pull the tube out. So those conversations are easier once you, you've seen what their end decision has been that they don't want invasive ventilation. Mm -hmm. And it seems like the role of kind of um, the healthcare provider is really to provide a lot of information to let them kind of make those um, choices, but then also um, inform them kind of how those choices like invasive ventilation um, will impact kind of future care and what that would look like. So really giving them maybe an understanding of, of kind of the potential courses if they choose one thing versus the other. And then the family, I, I didn't know that you oftentimes include the family in kind of those conversations in terms of feasibility, but it makes sense that in a very, unfortunately, resource-limited setting, um, that, that would be a big component of the decision um, and whether someone would rather stay home and opt out of invasive ventilation versus end up in long-term care with invasive ventilation. Like that, that really, I think, would rely on not only the individual patient's values, but also the family's values and ability to care for that person. And I, I don't want to minimize these conversations. These conversations are long conversations. It takes, you know, you're in, you're in there for a very long time having these conversations with both individuals. And they're complicated because everybody really needs to know what's on what's on the table. Um, so it, it's, it's challenging. Mm -hmm. And because these conversations um, are so long, and of course a lot of thought goes into making these choices, do you find that once a choice, for example, to not have invasive ventilation has been made, um, that choice kind of stays because they know that it aligns with their values? Or do you find that um, it changes over time? Oh, that's, that's a really interesting question, Larissa. So um, I will tell you that feeding tube decisions often change because patients um, may decide earlier in their disease that they do not want to have a feeding tube, but as they get closer um, and we revisit that conversation, they may change their mind because they may view their quality of life at the time they need a feeding tube to be better than they anticipated it to be. And so they, they may change their mind and accept a feeding tube at that point. Similarly, BiPAP, um, non-invasive ventilation, if they are again having a good quality of life and they are still active in their community or active with their family um, and still want to continue to live, they may accept that. It is rare, I'll say almost almost never, um, does somebody change their mind about the invasive ventilation uh, piece. Um, but certainly non-invasive ventilation decisions and feeding tube decisions 
are flexible in, in mind in some patients not not uh, not everybody um, but we do revisit just to make sure that decision is is uh, complete with the exception of there is a safety window that we have to consider so if someone decided that they didn't want a feeding tube but then they got closer, but their respiratory status was so severe that they couldn't safely have a feeding tube. We may have missed this, the window we could put a feeding tube in safely because as a physician, we don't want to um, put a feeding tube in someone who has severe respiratory insufficiency and unfortunately um, cause a complication, respiratory complication around the time of insertion and, and trigger their death. So we generally try to avoid um, putting feeding tubes who have severe respiratory insufficiency. So which another another conversation is that we sometimes have to have feeding tubes inserted before someone needs it because their window of safely putting in a feeding tube uh, may be closing because of how their respiratory status is. So we sometimes have to have those conversations earlier than we need, and those are complicated conversations. To say somebody who's talking and swallowing fine, but their respiratory status is falling, you need a feeding tube. Um, so th those are more challenging um, conversations to have. Thank you for listening. I hope that you enjoyed this episode of Hashtag Health. Our conversation with Dr. Shoesmith will continue in part two, which focuses on MAID and the future of ALS research. We hope that you'll join us for the next episode.